This is episode 17 of What's the Deal, Grosseal, the podcast exploring the people, places, history, and events that make Grosseal unique. I'm your host, Ben Fote. Before I introduce today's topic, let me warn you that this episode runs a little over an hour. You might want to find a comfy place to listen, perhaps with some Hiram Walker, Old Log Cabin, or Canada Dry. I can't remember when or where I've seen it, but every so often there's a reference connecting Grosseal to rum running, the smuggling of liquor from Canada into the U.S. during Prohibition. Detroit's most notorious mob, the Purple Gang, smuggled and hijacked Canadian liquor in and around Detroit, and some of that they sold to Al Capone. Capone's gang in Chicago and the Purple Gang become topical at Valentine's Day because they make up the survivors of the most notorious gang event of the 1920s, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I wanted to see if Grosseal had any direct connections to the Purple Gang. My guest today published his book about them just last year and was happy to talk with me about the Detroit mobs, rum running, and how Grosseal was involved. Well, today I'm very pleased to speak with Gregory A. Fournier. He's written a few books. One in particular looks at the parts of Detroit's seedier past. We're going to sift through Detroit's gangster history and Prohibition's connections to Grosseal. Thank you for talking with me today, Gregory. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, I reached out to you after seeing that you'd given a virtual book talk with the Royal Oak Library. And that book is about the Purple Gang. So let's start with that. How did you get interested in writing about the Purple Gang, the kosher nostra, as you call them? Well, I uh, heard stories growing up from, uh, you know, grandparents and people of of that age. And uh, so the the name was uh, just a name to me. But curious enough, we had a movie host in the Detroit area, Bill Kennedy. And Bill Kennedy showed the 1959 movie, The Purple Gang. And it had uh, Bobby Blake, Robert Blake in it, relatively young, young man. And when I saw the movie the first time, uh, you know, I enjoyed the heck out of it, but I didn't really know anything about The Purple Gang. And, uh, you know, it was not a very good movie, but it held my interest. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, go 50, 60 years later, I had read a few books on on the Purple Gang and really just had a hunger to find out more about them. And uh, I found out that a lot of the the information that's out there is uh, anecdotal and and folklore. And everybody of an age seems to have a story about the Purple Gang in, in the Detroit area. And can they all be true? Well, Maybe, maybe not. These guys operated clandestinely. It's hard to know who was with the uh, the rackets and which racket they were uh, associated with. I read uh, several books, and it just seemed to me the story was so layered and complex on the one hand, but boiling it down to the bare facts, you see that the, there's just a skeleton of a story because so many documents have been destroyed for whatever reasons, the families were embarrassed of uh, uh, of their uh, sons and you know grandsons being in the rackets, and, and so a lot of uh, family uh, uh, memorabilia, pictures, and so on were you know just all scooped up and uh, held close within the families. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll see what I can find out. And there's there's a gentleman uh, in the Detroit area 
who uh, has written several books on the Purple Gang, and, and they're very good books uh, from the standpoint of uh, facts and, and names. And But I, I found them just, they didn't flow. They just didn't seem to have a synergy because what I wanted was was the story, sure. not all the other, maybe this, maybe that, and and you know the beginning, middle, and end, which was really only about a a, a ten year period for the the Purple Gang, seven to ten years, depending on how you count it. Mm-hmm. And then they were gone; they disappeared from uh, the Detroit underworld. And there were still a few independent operators knocking around, but the mafia basically hit them and uh what's called the new partnership took over to to get with the title a little bit uh the new partnership was an effort after a gang war to consolidate the underworld in detroit and the mafia factions in particular and while that was going on there was a gang war in new york also and the winners of that came up with well, one of the things was Murder Incorporated. It was an assassination bureau. But the name that, uh, you know, to get away from the mafia name, the name they came up with was La Cosa Nostra. So my book, The uh, Elusive Purple Gang, uh, Detroit's Kosher Nostra, is simply a play on words. And sure. if you try to think about it too hard, It'll give you a headache, you know? (laughs) So it was uh, a a word, by the way, kosher nostra, a phrase that I did not invent. I found it in a newspaper article going all the way back to the 1930s. A reporter had used it, and whether he coined it or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a very snappy uh, phrase, and uh, it, it was appropriate for my book to stand out from other books on the topic. I put that in as a subtitle. Sure. To piece it all together, it's because the the Purple Gang was, was were they mostly Jewish folks, or were they all um, Mostly, uh, but they had Italians that worked with them. They had Polish. They had Irish. It was a very dare I say, democratic uh, kind of arrangement that they had. And early on, there was so much money to be made and everybody was making it. And there really, there wasn't a problem. But as time went on and the profits got larger, the stakes got higher because of uh, law enforcement and so on, the cost of doing business often involved uh, taking human life. There was a real bloodbath uh, from the 19... 25 in particular through 1931. In 33, prohibition ended. So that took a lot of the motivation out of the smuggling business. And little by little, things returned to normal. And so the, the reason that I wanted to talk with you, it actually ties into that. So the Purple Gang's main business was was rum running, right? Uh, that's where they made their greatest profits. With the Purple Gang in particular, they were more into the hijacking end of the business. Okay. Uh, they did eventually get a, a group of people uh, who were called the Little Jewish Navy, and they uh, suited up with a bunch of, of uh, speedboats, and then they were importing a lot of the, the liquor themselves. They had the the river divided up to stay out of uh, one another's way. When, when I talk about one another, it's a little backstory. The East Side Mafia basically controlled things from Belle Isle up 
into Lake St. Clair and beyond. Uh, that was the East Side Mafia. The West Side Mafia pretty much controlled the, the river traffic from oh, the Rouge River. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, what's the name of that river? The Rouge <laughs> River. Sure. Uh, and going all the way down to oh, Gross Eel, but probably Maybe. Monroe as well. Okay. That was a, a far afield. And so the, that was the West Side Mafia. Those two groups are going to have a, a gang war in a few years. Sure. That is going to make this uh, partnership, Detroit partnership, uh, uh, a new reality. And in, in between, from you know the River Rouge and going up to Belle Isle was Purple Gang territory, and they, within uh, reason, respected each other's boundaries for quite a while. Okay. When I think of that, I, of course, being new to the Detroit area, really, I think of those as a north-south thing, and uh, I can see if you live in Detroit, it's it's really an east-west thing. So yeah, and you it know, was confusing to me when I first heard about it because the the West Side Gang that includes Hamtramck, which I don't think of being tied up connected to to downriver at all. Yeah, it sure was. It yeah. sure was connected because the kingpin in Hamtramck was Chester Lamari. And Lamari had interests in Wyandotte that involved some speakeasies, you know, the, the typical stuff that a, a drug don, uh, uh, you know, would have as, as a business. But part of his downriver operation was organizing the family stills, you know, the backyard, basement, garage stills that mm-hmm. produced, you know, pure alcohol. And he had a, a people he'd go around and collect it, pay people cash for it. Remember that much of uh, of this period is the the Great Depression, and there weren't that many jobs. Jobs like like with COVID uh, just evaporated, and people could make money if they uh, were in cahoots. So the law was unpopular, and I, I read one writer said that stills in Downriver were as popular as televisions are today. <laughs> and uh, I think that's hyperbole. I think probably. You, you get the point. Uh, sure. There were lots of, of those stills. And that and that's a whole other uh, part of the story, the cutting of the liquor and sure. how to age it and you know, all of that. So. Right. And so if I understand right, you wrote about they would import liquor from, from Canada and then, and then dilute the homemade stuff. Yeah. To, to blend in and add, was it uh, coal? Coal tar was one of the coloring and aging yeah. <laughs> elements. Coal tar. Yeah, and there were other things. I, I, uh, I'm sure that. Uh, yeah. And they then they filled they up, they fill up used bottles and, and sell those with forged documents, right? Well, they, uh, all, the Purple Gang, uh, controlled the uh, label, liquor label printing racket as well for all the gangs and they they made lots of money on prohibition that wasn't just on the liquor but and then they'd make government stamps replicas of the canadian government stamp to show oh yeah this is this is bonded royal crown crown royal liquor or or any of the other good canadian brands and so they you know one way or another take the old label off they put the new label on and it looked like the real thing and and grossiel ties into this just a little bit because it's in the river and and so um i think we've we've got sort of a a history of being either a a landing point maybe or a a hiding space 
Yeah, both, both. And to focus this on Grosseal for a minute, because Windat was the epicenter in Downriver. But uh, I took a couple of notes. And when after uh, the uh, Volstead Act took over, because Michigan had prohibition three years before Ohio, they had the Ohio, the Detroit, Ohio funnel. And people would just go take their cars, go down to, you know, 30 miles down to Toledo fill up and come back. And the roads were the Dixie Highway, I think was M50, and Telegraph, the north-south, M52, I believe. And so all the liquor was just coming right up through Monroe and then into Wyandotte, where a lot of times it was stored in houses, basements, and barns until uh, the roads were clear, and then they'd load the trucks up again and, you know, take them into Detroit. Now, Grosseal, as you all know, lies to the east of the mainland a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so you were out of uh, the mainstream as far as the car traffic and as far as the railroad traffic, because there were whole train cars that would be filled with cases of booze. This is before the Volstead Act in uh, uh, 1920. Oh, right. So coming across from They're coming from from Ohio. Ohio. Okay, yeah by car and by train. There are five different railroads that have their sidings and, you know, all the railroad tracks that sure. uh, Hard to escape them here. loosen your teeth when you drive yeah. over them. Uh, it's been that way, you know, since I was first driving over them in the 50s. A lot of the, the cars, sidecars, uh, you know, they just let the freight cars kind of sit there. And then uh, these guys would know which one they needed to get into. They'd, in the middle of the night, they'd open it up, unload it, lock it back up and send it on its way. Uh, And then the cars would distribute the liquor throughout town and throughout all of downriver. And a lot of the liquor, you know, went right up to Detroit as well, because they had many more people and an insatiable thirst for it. In fact, I I learned a a new phrase, uh, just trying to bone up on, on the topic a little bit yesterday. A lot of the bars uh, and speakeasies, uh, and blind pigs were called thirst parlors. Wow, what an old-fashioned term that is. Thirst yeah. parlors. And that's just what they were. And the thirst was insatiable for the liquor. Getting you know back to uh, Grosseal, a couple of interesting things. Uh, Grosseal was, uh, and there are, I think, five islands in Grosseal now, but today every island has, has a different name. Sure. It's right next to Sugar Island and some other islands. Hickory Island, the, the, yeah. Uh, uh, Bois Blanc Island, the White Woods, which Detroiters uh, know as Boblo Island. Right. And then the Canadian mainland with Amherstburg. Sure. For a couple of hundred years at least, uh, that was a, a, a smuggling route. Uh, uh, during the uh, Underground Railroad, that was one of the most popular uh, routes for people to go over to Canada. And that's why Amherstburg has such a rich history of Underground Railroad homes and tunnels. They even have a museum to it. Yes, uh, I've been there, and I'll tell you, what a nice town. What a nice town Amherstburg is. Someday we'll get to go back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hope so. I have publishing friends in Windsor yeah. and 
they've been very helpful to me. And I, I found that it seems like the Canadians did a much better job uh, documenting their prohibition period than in America. And a lot of my resources for this book are written by Canadian authors. Sure. Uh, in, in fact, they even have a, a drama that happens on a bus that you take around from, from site to site and they, they reenact things. There are some songs that are sung and some, yeah. some gunfights well, that happen. The Border Cities Tour. I think is what it's called. Oh, this one's the Run Runners tour. Run Runners tour. Oh well, it's it's kind of the same thing, and their tour is of the border cities. Absolutely, absolutely. And Amherstburg. I I don't know if there was much south of Amherstburg as far as the the docks where where all these boats would pull up and get loaded with liquor. But there were lots and lots of them all up and down from Walkerville, where Hiram Walker brewery distilleries and brewery were up there and you know the other part of ontario i think was serviced pretty much by uh toronto and uh, buffalo and so on like that Uh, they got their liquor from toronto but where if you look at the map can you look across of you know you don't even need binoculars Uh, you can look across the detroit river and you can see the distilleries and the breweries and if in the winter it, it ices over you could walk. Most people didn't. You could take cars, old jalopies. They cut the roofs, take the doors off to reduce weight, but yeah. only because of all the weight that they're putting with the cases of, uh, uh, generally it was liquor, but beer as well, kegs of beer, but liquor had a lot more profit margin to it. And sometimes uh, these cars would uh, break through the ice. And so if they tore the doors off the cars, it gave them a better chance to jump out and not go down with the ship. And I think a picture of that's on the cover of your book. Yeah. Uh, and that picture was taken in Lake St. Clair. Okay. Uh, I've seen where people said it was elsewhere, but it, it's documented to be uh, up in Lake St. Clair. If I could, while I'm thinking about it, during the winter, it was, uh, made it easy for people to get across. I've read where they said, well, the river used to totally freeze over, but then I've seen other accounts and pictures where it was not totally frozen over. And there were a number of strategies to get across. And I'm not going to go into those right now because I want to talk about north and south of the Detroit River. Lake St. Clair, you get up around there, you know, the Great Lakes, uh, current is, you know, pretty slow. Uh, So you go to the Great Lakes uh, and they, they freeze over. And that's where a lot of the, uh, winter bootlegging traffic took place. And that's true on the other end of the Detroit River, uh, which uh, would be Lake Erie, Mm -hmm. which was almost like the Dead Sea, just sitting there. Uh, And that would, uh, and it wasn't that deep either, that would freeze over. Again, that's what made smuggling on Grassy Island and Sugar Island and and the Gros Eel Islands. That's what made them so attractive to the bootleggers. They had lots of places to hide the the alcohol, their boats, and they, you know, had a lot of times inside information about when patrols would come by or they'd pay a, a boat crew not to be somewhere at a particular time so they, the, the booze could go across. Now, the police weren't particularly, uh, authorities weren't happy with the new law either. 
as prohibition went on, they were sitting ducks. I mean, they've got uniforms on, easy to spot, and and uh, so on. And they didn't get paid that much. So for a lot of them, it was uh, beyond the take and uh, have some money to bring home and for whatever, or refuse and be killed. And, you know, that, that's not much of a Hobbs, Hobson's choice. No, and most people, yeah, most people tended uh, to want to do whatever was the least, what they perceived to be the least risky for them. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were caught in the crossfire and killed. And so it got to a point where the public was scared to death, and especially around Gross Eel area, because, well, this is later on in the story, but it doesn't matter. In 1930, 31, the government finally came up with a lot of money to buy a new fleet of Coast Guard ships. And they had boats, uh, smaller boats, uh, I forget what they call them, but they, they had 15 boats. And tw- 12 of them were these fast speed patrol boats. Okay. Mm-hmm. And three of them were Coast Guard cutters. And the cutters operated in uh, Lake Erie. But no matter what the government got, the gangsters could afford and they bought better and faster boats. But it got to a point of frustration for the Coast Guard. And there was so much pressure on them because the Congress gave them $13 million, whatever it was, and they wanted results. So the, the Coast Guard became very aggressive and they started harassing pleasure boat owners and fishermen. And I grew up on that river. I fished a lot up and down that river, and in particular around Gros Eel and right, a great uh, walleye fish in there. It's got a sandy bottom. Yeah. Anyway, another story. And the, the uh, Coast Guard had machine guns mounted on, on the front of the boats, and they started shooting up people all up and down the river. A few people were killed. They'd uh, stop a boat, and then they'd board the boat and search it and threaten people and harass, you know, people who are out just, you know, for a a pleasure boat trip. After a couple of two, three uh, local people were killed on the shore from uh, collateral damage, the Gross Eel Yacht Club and other citizen organizations really started complaining about the the Coast Guard and uh, how they're a bunch of cowboys and they're shooting up the area and nobody's safe and and, and they're, they're rude to boaters, and they've made the Detroit River up of you know a killing ground, and and not the the great water resource uh, the Detroiters and you know Michigan people were accustomed to. That was one of the effects uh, that that we can you know connect to uh, uh, gross eel, and sure. apparently you know, a lot of well-heeled people on the island, I, I guess. And uh, you know how it goes with a government and influence. The more status you have, the more money you have, the more influence you have, the more satisfaction you're going to get. And uh, the average person can complain and uh, nothing happens. So uh, the Grosseal Yacht Club uh, really did a lot to draw in some of these these Coast Guard uh, people, and a lot of the people on those uh, those boats were newly trained as well, 
and younger, and I'm going to use the word hot dogs. Yeah. You know, they wanted to impress their their boss. So uh, there were lots of bad things done on, on on both sides, and I guess that's that's what happens when you deal with human nature. Sure. So speaking of bad things, um, we we talked about the Purple Gang, and we talked about Grossiel's ties to to prohibition, and and sort of what got the the Purple Gang going. This leads us to why we're talking about this right before Valentine's Day. Oh, okay. Um, so, of course, the Purple Gang's probably most notorious for their involvement with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. Yes. When I, I got three large biographies of Al Capone, because I really wanted to get down to the, the bottom of it. And uh-huh. you say, wow, wasn't there a lot of repetition and there was some repetition, but uh, each one of these books also had things that other books didn't have. And so I tried to piece together the story about who was involved. Sure. And then I gave my version in my book, which I guess is as valid as any other author because they're all different. <laughs> but we do know who some of the people were uh, through evidence and not just anecdotal stories. So uh, if I could take a couple of minutes, but there's a a big gang war going on in Chicago between Al Capone and George Bugsy Moran, the North Side uh, gang and Capone and his uh, South Siders. The North Siders were bumping off some of Capone's men and uh, some of the the barkeeps that sold Capone liquor and so on. He had had enough of it. And he decided that we need to, and there's more to the story, but I'm trying to simplify it, sure. that he needed to draw the whole gang together, as many of them as they could, and then go in and massacre them. And that occurred on February 14th, 1929, I think. Yeah. So the story goes like this. <clears throat> Capone, who had uh, a good uh, affiliate relationship with the Purple Gang, either contacted Abe Bernstein, how that happened, who knows. But Bernstein and Capone came up with this idea that they were going to bait Moran with a truckload of Capone's favorite whiskey, Old Log Cabin from a Quebec distillery. An uncut. 100 proof uncut. Now, there were four or five other varieties of phony old log cabin sold in America, and they were the general 80 to 86 proof, you know, standard proof. But they, they weren't the fine 100 proof fine liquor bourbon, it was. And so uh, Abe Bernstein contacts uh, Moran and says, hey, our guys uh, hijack a load of uh, Capone old log cabinet's favorite bourbon. And it's really hot and we got to move it. Uh, would you be interested in picking it up for, I don't know, $17 gallon, uh, dollars, uh, a case or some incredibly uh, cheap value to sweeten the deal? And Moran needed the booze for his, his own organization and his speakeasies. But he also wanted to stick it to Al Capone. So by hijacking a, a, a truckload of his stuff, uh, it would get the... The desired effect. So they set the thing up, 
for Valentine's Day, and our guys will drive the truck and have your guys there so we can unload it real quick, as many guys as you can, because we want to get into town and get out. And he said, okay. So that drew more of the members together to help unload this truck. Seven of them. And one of them, Moran, was, didn't happen to be there for the killing. And I'll get to that in a minute. So number one, Abe Bernstein helps set it up. And that's fairly well uh, documented. He sends three of his guys, torpedoes, to Chicago. And they're lookouts. And they go across the street from the SMC Cartage Company on North Clark Street. And there were a couple of boarding houses uh, across there. So uh, Phil Keywell, his brother Harry, and a third man, Eddie Fletcher, all Purple Gang people, are the lookouts. And they take turns. And the uh, boarding houses that they're at are, you know, separated by a, a building. So they're they're seeing the street from, you know, at an angle so they can look at the intersection on each side, you know, so they have a, a good vantage point. And these guys came in, they said they were truck, uh, taxi drivers, and they worked at, at night and they weren't around much and, and they paid in, van, uh, in advance. So the landladies took the money. Later on, it was those two landladies who looked at mugshots and picked these three guys out. There were two different landladies, and they did this separately. So, you know, there was corroboration. Sure. So we know that Phil Keywell, Harry Keywell, Eddie Fletcher, and Abe Bernstein were all involved, for sure. There was another affiliate member, part-time member, who was the key person in all of this, and that was Fred Killer Burke. And Fred was a machine gunner in World War One. He was a big guy. And to hold a machine gun with a full canister of bullets was very, very heavy. And it was hard to handle because once you pull the trigger, it just, you know, spit those bullets out. And it had a tendency for the barrel to shoot upwards. So you had to be skilled and you had to be big to be able to wrestle with that gun. Burke was that way. He was a machine gunner on, on a, a tank convoy in World War I, saw a lot of action, saw a lot of death, and killed a lot of people, and he was pretty much indifferent to it. He was probably the most dangerous man in all of the Prohibition period, but I'll finish this story first. So he was one of the machine gunners. A friend of his from uh, St. Louis, and the name escapes me at the moment, was the other machine gunner. There were Burke's guns, by the way. And then there were two other people that could have been Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Everybody has different ideas of who these people were and and ex-cons in in prison who like to talk so they can go out, drink a coffee, eat a donut, smoke a cigarette, and talk to a reporter or something. And so everybody had a story. Not reliable. So the other two guys had long overcoats on. One had a machine gun. I'm sorry, uh, a sawed-off shotgun under his overcoat. The other guy had an automatic pistol that was rigged up with a clip and, and so on. And then the two cops each had these machine guns. They lined the guys up, and you know that that part of the story. They cut them uh, down uh, pretty bad. In the meantime, 
Keywell, the Keywell brothers and Fletcher, they're in their car, they're heading back to Detroit. And they thought that Bugsy Moran was in there too, as one of the people that got killed. Somebody showed up late, was the same size as Moran. It was very cold in the morning, had his coat up, uh, sure. overcoat with the, the collar up and a fedora pulled over his, his head. It's February and, in Chicago. It's cold. And, yeah. And, and windy, uh, very yeah. blustery. This guy comes a couple of minutes after everybody else. Well, that's when they called in the hit squad that was waiting. All of these guys were waiting in a, in a Cadillac and, 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 and drove up. The cops went in, told everybody up against the wall. Then the other two guys came in in the overcoats and then they opened up and killed the seven men. Somebody who happened to be out on the street at that time saw the two cops come out with the machine guns looking like they had arrested two people, the guys in the overcoats, their accomplices, had the guns on, false flag situation. Get them into the car, they jump in the car, bang, they take off. Well, who knows, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, the real police show up and they're, they're looking for witnesses, and, and, and people are telling them, oh, yeah, uh, a couple of you guys, you know, they arrested a couple of people, them. just took yeah. off. I said, what? And nothing like that happened. One of the women, though, said, she says, one of the cops, he's a big guy, real big guy, and he was missing a front tooth. Mm. And the police, you know, who uh, the detectives who uh, knew about such things said, that's Fred Killer Burke. No proof, but I mean, good guess, huh? Yeah. And uh, but it took a couple of years, uh, a couple more years, before uh, the police were able to uh, subdue Burke and prove scientifically that he was one of the gunmen. Yeah, and, and you wrote uh, about that extensively in there. And yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating good story. story. Yeah. And if I could talk just about Burke for a minute, sure. Why he's the most dangerous man during prohibition period. Uh, and people would argue that Al Capone was, but I mean, my opinion is that three of the major murders, uh, massacre type during the uh, Prohibition were the Milliflores apartment massacre in Detroit, where three guys were cut down with someone with a machine gun. The St. Valentine's Day murders, seven people cut down with the machine gun. And a third murder. In New York, Frankie Yale was a bootlegging kingpin in the New York mob. And why he was being hit, uh, I, I don't have that information at the top of my head. But somebody decided that he needed to be hit. And Burke was chosen for the job. And it's been scientifically proven he was a gunman uh, or a gunman in two of the shootings and the gunman gunman and the third shooting how did they do that well people in chicago were tired of the bloodshed was bad for business some companies a real big company that i the name is escaping me put lots and lots of funding into a crime lab at the i believe northwestern university or no university of chicago the the nation's first scientific modern crime lab they uh, hired a, a guy who was a munitions expert in World War I and worked in New York in ballistics research. 
And he discovered that every gun leaves a, a fingerprint, uh, I don't know what else, the telltale marks on it that are different than any other gun, even the, the same gun model with bullets from the same box of cartridges. When you shoot them, there are different marks that yeah. are made. Lots of research and study on that. And so when Burke ran away, he was trying to escape from the police for two or three years. He made a narrow escape, but was not able to get his machine guns. So when the police got to the place, they had the guns. They sent the guns to Chicago, and they were able to tell that, yes, the two, gun, the two machine guns that they had were from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So they, they had Killer Burke cold on that one. Because uh, the Detroit police wanted to find out about Miliflores and there was a machine gun used there, they sent some of their bullets to Chicago or, I, or maybe Chicago came to Detroit. I forget how that, that happened. Once again, they found out that one of those machine guns was the machine gun used in the Miliflores massacre in Detroit. And not to be outdone, the crime people in New York had this unsolved Frankie Yale machine gun murder. So they packed a bullet up in cotton, wrapped it up, sent it in a box, and that proved also to have the, the signature of Killer Burke's machine guns. Hmm. So those are three of the, the most notorious murders during the Prohibition period, and they were all committed by the same man. Wow. Yeah, and uh, that technology is the source of so many TV shows since then. Oh yeah, With CSI yeah. and NCI, or uh, yeah, all those. Oh, and it, you know they make it look good uh, on television. Right, right. But I'll tell you, you know, murder is never nice and neat, especially gang type murders. Uh, and on TV, yeah, they tie it all up. They got forty-seven minutes to fill in a, a sixty-minute hour. Yeah, and and they do quite well at it, but uh, that's not how it works in in real life usually. And even though DNA has helped immeasurably, DNA also has its limits. Sure, <laughs> if you're not in the system, doesn't help. Sure. So they found all this evidence. How did they finally catch up to Burke? He uh, was caught in Missouri, where he, he had lived. He was from. Sure. And for uh, police, uh, there's a whole story to that, but uh, he gets caught down in Missouri uh -huh. and taken back up to Michigan for uh, St. Joseph, Michigan for a trial for killing a cop. And to cut to the chase, when he goes for arraignment, he admits that he's guilty. And it freaked everybody out because it's going to be a big case. We're going to have to have extra security. The jail in uh, Barron County is not you know, just a brick building. And they're afraid that gangsters are going to break him out. And when Burke knew where he stood with organized crime because he had double-crossed a, a number of, pe of people, he knew he was safer in prison than he was on the street. They sent him to Marquette Prison. And he was in there for a good number of, of years, well, I don't know, eight or nine years. He worked uh, in the woodworking shop. He was like a foreman. And one morning, he didn't show up for work, and he had died of a heart attack in bed. So that's the end of Killer Burke. Yeah, no drama to that. Well, I, I'm sure there was drama for him because there were purple gang people in Marquette as well. Oh, I'm sure. And, I'm uh, sure. Uh, the gang and Burke had a falling out. 
there there was an opportunity to send him to Jackson. He said, no, I don't want to go there because uh, I wouldn't last a week. The place is full of Purple Gang people. Sure. But there were Purple Gang members up in Marquette as well. So those are all the questions that caused me to notice your talk when it popped up on, on mm-hmm. Facebook uh, a couple weeks ago. I've watched that talk and I'll link to it in the episode notes. I'm actually halfway through your book, The Elusive Purple Gang, and I'll have links to that in the episode notes too, and and they can take a look at all those. So one of the parts that sticks out to me, um, probably because I just read about it last night, is uh, the part about Lois Bartlett, I believe, and the attempted assassination of Henry Garvin, an inspector for the police force. I found that really interesting. Could you read a little bit from, from your book about that? Uh, yeah, and that part uh, was uh, interesting to me because... It within the newspaper articles from the the uh, Detroit Times. This was a running story, so I was able to <clears throat> follow it like that human interest story. Sure, because the anti-prohibition people and the the general public were tired of all all the carnage, and so Lois's case was an example of the collateral damage done to her. So. Golden-haired, 11-year-old Lois Bartlett, walking on her own to Keating School, was hit by stray shotgun pellets meant for Inspector Garvin. Two neighborhood women, Mrs. J.S. Tolton and Mrs. Clara Laird, were the first to reach the Bartlett child lying bleeding on the snow-covered sidewalk. Mrs. Lard, the young girl to her home. All Lois could tell police investigators when they showed up was that she had heard shots and felt a couple of burning pains. Then she collapsed. Lois was rushed by ambulance to the same hospital Inspector Garvin was taken to, Detroit Receiving Hospital. Emergency room doctors found shotgun pellets in Lori's body, one in her upper body, two in the arm, and one in the back of her head lodged near her spinal cord, which was life-threatening. Crime scene investigators found 29 bullet and shotgun pellets embedded in the porch and exterior of the house where Garvin and Bartlett were shot. Meanwhile, a shotgun pellet that endangered Lois's Bartlett's life was removed from the base of her skull. A spokesman for receiving hospital told reporters that the 11-year-old was recovering nicely. Her mother added to the press, I spent night and day at my daughter's bedside. She is all my husband and I have. Eleven days after the shooting, Detroit Superintendent of Schools Frank Cody visited Lois in the hospital, awarding her a promotion certificate from 6th grade level B to 6th grade level A. (laughs) The conscientious student was worried about missing schoolwork since she had been in the hospital. The visit was intended to relieve Lois's concern and rest her mind about promotion. She thanked Superintendent Cody for the certificate. I'm glad I passed, she said. And one last bit, Inspector Garvin left the hospital to recover in the comfort of his home. Lois Bartlett was still confined to a hospital bed. On Friday, January 24, 1930, more than three weeks after her shooting, Lois Bartlett was able to sit up and receive some school friends at her bedside for the first time. Lois spoke of her desire to see her Persian kitten snowball. Gathered around her in the hospital room were a brightly colored French doll, a plush dog, and a bowl of goldfish the inspector had given her. 
Lois said she spoke with Inspector Garvin over the telephone and told him she was happy he had recovered enough to go home and expressed gratitude for the many flowers he had sent her. <laughs> and then you you note later on that that when she's older that she mentions uh, to the free press that that was all well and good but it didn't help down the road. Well, I can read that too if you want. <laughs> sure. In 1958 it was July 20, oh, 1958. A feature story. Whatever happened to the little girl cut down by a gang's guns? Provocative title, huh? Yeah. Lois Bartlett Alford, now she's married, was interviewed by journalist Riley Murray. 39-year-old Lois lived with her husband and son in Dearborn Township. She told Murray that the city of Detroit paid for a five-week stay at receiving hospital, and the police passed the hat, giving her a gift of $256. Quote, that's despite the fact that my surgical and medical bills since I was discharged from the hospital have cost us nearly $3,000. Shotgun pellets affected my eyesight, hearing, and my arm, making it hard for me to pick up anything heavy. Nine months ago, I underwent abdominal surgery to remove more pellets. And she lived until uh, December 28th, 2001. She lived with pain all those years. But so she became a, a media story that opposed uh, the prohibition. And, and a lot of times there were oblique references in the newspaper to her. They yeah. you know, didn't want her out there too much and, and, and danger her further. Sure. Whenever anything came up about collateral damage from a gunfight, Lois's name came to mind yeah well thank you for sharing from the book You're and welcome. you have you have uh by my count three other books that you've published yeah uh real quickly zug island a detroit riot novel and that talks about me thrown out of eastern michigan university for drinking and having <laughs> to get a job in january hmm, somewhere well the auto factories and the suppliers are all shut down for changeover at that time of the year. So where do you go to get a job? Well, the Michigan Employment Commission on Biddle Avenue, that's where. <laughs> so I went there, I was 18 years old, and place was packed with people. And I oh, great for me, I won't get a job, you know? But I was wrong. And I found out that the steel mill is always hiring suckers. And I needed the money and more than anything else, I needed to get out of the house because my mom was not amused. <laughs> I'm not going to have any lounge lizard living in my house. <laughs> and so I went to work there and it happened to be 1967. And by July, you know, the uh, Detroit riots broke out and I was working downtown and uh, got to see a lot, you know, the tanks, the half tracks, I had machine guns pointed at me driving to work having my car turned upside down to make sure that I didn't have, you know, a, or Molotov cocked. I had a Volkswagen a trunk in the front mm -hmm. and I had two six packs of soda bottles that, you know, I want to get my two cents a piece or whatever they were, five cents in those days. Yeah, Man, I, they gave me a whole lot of trouble because they were sure that, you know, I was going to fill them up with gasoline and make Molotov cocktails out of them. So you know, the experience left a definite impression. And yes, I, uh, uh, I wrote about it. And because I want to change some of the things about my, uh, my family, just, you know, you have to sometimes simplify a story to, to tell the story without bogging it down. 
And so I made some changes here and there, but everything in there about the riots and about Detroit, suburban racism, which was very, very pervasive and uh, vocal, all of that was fodder for that book. And uh, it's done very well. I've got a couple of people taking a look at it that uh, might be interested in making a a movie or a, a TV show out of it. And then the second book I wrote, my goal was to write one book, one and done. But I found out that I really enjoyed it, and people seemed to enjoy the book. And I got some praise. You know, you get a little encouragement, and yeah, you know that's it. It's then you end up with a podcast. Yeah, well, you're right. <laughs> I uh, Terror in Ypsilanti is about serial killer John Norman Collins, and that case was so obscured by a book written five years after the event. This is, we're talking 67 through 69, that it didn't have any uh, real hindsight. And it just basically told the police and the prosecutor's version of the story mm-hmm. and uh, left much to be desired and changed the names of the victims and gave cover to the murderer by changing his name from John Collins to John Armstrong. Hmm. So it confused uh, people who even grew up there and who knew the story. Well, when I felt there was a void there, I wanted to know the truth. I had read the other book. I'm not going to mention it. I read the other book, three competitor, three yeah. times over about a 25, 30 year period. Each time I was less happy with it. And I said, well, I'm looking for another new topic. And I found one and that took me five years to write. And just to cut to the chase on that one, a Canadian, and I love the Canadians, so I got Canadian background myself. Yeah. Canadian media company picked it up, asked if they could buy an, uh, two years of an option. I said, sure, easy money. Then they just now, January here, uh, paid me another thousand uh, for another year of option because uh, they have, they're building a proposal for an eight part miniseries. Oh, wow. The pilot is being written for the miniseries. And the pilot is, basically a what they call a, a proof of concept they maybe do 15 minutes of some very compelling aspect of the story and then they they build the whole promotional package around it and that's where i'm at right now and then uh, and and i'm going to be a, a script advisor on it so that's <laughs> hey that's cool yeah never done that before that's the second book third book was a legacy project for the Ypsilanti uh, Historical Society. They helped me so, so much in the Terra and Ypsilanti book that one of the docents who was wheelchair bound told me a story one day that he, he and uh, his other docent buddy had two boxes full of documents about the Richard Stryker Jr. murder in 1935. They had taken uh, two or three years to put it all together. And George did not have the, I don't think he had the strength uh, at that point to even attempt to write a book about it. So he asked me if I would do it. And I was busy with, uh, you know, Terran Ypsilanti. I said, nah, I can't do it right now. But, you know, maybe in the future, when you're as sick as George was, the future was, you know, a few months later and he died. And so a couple months after that, I get a call from Ypsilanti and they asked if I would be interested. They told me George had died and he asked somebody to get in touch with me about it again. The other docent called me uh, and he said, would you 
you know, are you busy? Would you be interested? And I said, well, you know, the next project is I want to write about is the Purple Gang. Yeah, out of respect for George and the help, and 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 because it was a just a compelling story, uh, I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." It's a small book, but I pack it with facts and a very incredible story because it it, it talks about wire tapping in it, oh. which was was new yeah. uh, at that time, and truth serum, huh. sodium pentothal. Yeah, uh, was used in that case, and this is 1935. So 1935, yeah. So you know, you research something, you you find out all kinds of uh, sure interesting side matter, and so I put that book together. And my only regret with that book is that I didn't have more quality information to add to it and give a conclusion as to who killed seven-year-old Richard Stryker. But mm-hmm. I think it's very clear to me and readers, the police, the prosecutor, just about everybody who the killer was. And that's what that book is about. And and actually, that's just recently started to get some traction and and starting to sell. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing seeing how that goes. Yeah. And And like I said before, we'll have links to all this and we'll make sure. And then this book we talked about today, The Elusive Purple Gang. And uh, you also have a blog. A blog, fornology.com. Com will get you there. What I love writing the most are blog posts, nostalgic blog posts about southeastern Michigan, Ypsilanti East. And, and I've been uh, writing posts about celebrities from 1950s Detroit television. But I, I write, uh, I have a post coming out next week on Father Gabriel. Richard, who is an important person in uh, the history of Detroit that most people don't know who he is. And uh, he was one of the founders of, uh, as it turns out, the University of Michigan. Very interesting man. And Fort Wayne, sometimes I'll do about place events. And I uh, had the best time. I I, I did a two-parter on uh, someone who, in the 50s, TV, the Lady of Charm. She was the originator and pioneer for all of the Martha Stewarts of the oh, world. Wow. And this woman, even though she you know was the lady of charm and you know did that the house whiffery thing, she was a shrewd businesswoman, and that woman made hand money hand over fist. People in Detroit just Love that post, uh, <laughs> the older people, because I haven't thought about her for 50 years. Yeah. So I'd like to do that sort of stuff. Why I like posting and blogging is because I can endlessly revise it because, yes, I do make mistakes in spelling and other stuff. There are people out there that are more than happy to point that out <laughs> to me. And then I go back and I, I, I correct it. And sure. I, I have sure. no problem with that. I like it because of the instant gratification of it. I can write it. It takes me three to five days to write a post, you know, do the research, sure. mill over it, write it, yeah. type it, and then bang, I publish it right on the spot. And I wait a couple hours and I can tell you, you know, almost within a hundred hits of how a post is going to do because I know my audience that well. Great. So I, I just, uh, I enjoy it so much. I get the instant gratification and people like it. And in these sad times that we live in now, 
I I felt that it that I had the opportunity to maybe cheer people up a little bit or to give them a distraction sure. for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And so that that's where I am. 480 posts. And uh, you're wow. going to ask me, I know, if I'm working on a, a, what I'm working on now. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to put together an Alex Karras biography uh, and COVID just kind of knocked literally knocked the legs out from under me. And I don't want it to be about his uh, sports career or his uh, television uh, career uh, or movie career, although I would mention those, but those have been written about. I want to write about the man and his daughter asked me to write it and I worked on it and I ended up writing four or five blog posts of, of what I could find. But he had two families and his second wife, Sharon Clark, the actress, is rather old. She lives in Sarnia. So that's not too far across from Port Huron. Yeah. But I uh, had a a mutual, you know, somebody I knew that knew her and he asked her if she'd be interested. She'd be interested and she wasn't, but they had a daughter. She's probably, you know, 50, 60 years old by now. And I have some contact information for her. So I've contacted her twice. I don't want to harass her. But I, I'm hoping that I can get her to open up because Alex Karras is historically significant because he was the first signer of a lawsuit against the NFL's, you know, the concussion injuries and all of that sort of thing. Sure. So he was the number one person uh, of, of many, many NFL athletes who had signed this. And he died before, you know, there was a settlement on the case. But the NFL fought it and fought it and fought it, and, and they ran out of appeals. And I think that's a story that needs to be told. There were problems uh, with Alex in his later years. He had a number of different illnesses. But I think the most troubling for his family and for people to think about is that he suffered from dementia towards the end. And part of you get to a point where you know you, you got that label dementia. A lot of times those people tend to get extremely frustrated and, and, and violent. I don't know that he was violent uh, with his family, but Sharon Clark has said that it was not easy living with them in the later years. Yeah. And I think that's the story that needs to be told, um, not to put him down. Right. But, and we'll see how that goes. And the other thing is I've got 480 blog posts. I can't believe it, but I've got 480 <laughs> and seven or eight of them are pretty good. No, a lot of them are pretty good. So I'm thinking now that two, I might come up with two or three volumes of, you know, maybe Detroit stories, Ypsilanti stories, Michigan sure. at large stories. And I'm 72. So I, you know, the, so that's another two, three, four years worth of work in front of me. There you so go. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, don't want to push it. <laughs> so we're at the the end of our well, interview here and and i'll tell you that well we didn't actually talk about this you you live in san diego now so, uh i so yeah. we're suffering we're um i'm recording this a couple of weeks before it'll be published and we're expecting maybe six inches of snow tonight yeah yeah you're not expect, expecting any snow anytime soon well uh, i don't i don't want to i don't want to uh d- disillusion you but we can see snow i'm 18 miles inland in the foothills and no snow but if i go yeah. to the a couple blocks down the end of the street you can see it uh and i look to the east 
we got a couple of ranges as the mountains start building up yeah. uh, and there is snow in the mountains up there and you can see it from from Santee. And I, I don't, just I don't think anybody here is going to feel sorry for you. Oh, no, no, they shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't because it looks like a darn postcard. That's right. But uh, That's I right. won't tell you how, how nice the weather is, but I had an opportunity. And uh, as long as we're talking weather, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm not a weather virgin. In uh, 1978, sure. oh, man, was that a winter. And about the, by the time we dug out, I mean, from 78 in the beginning of 79, I remember digging out. It was about the third week of January. Yeah, January. And I got in the car with my dog, and we went out to California. I quit my job at Ypsilanti High School. I was 30, and I figured, hey, I'm at the crossroads, and I'm, I've had it with winter. So, uh, And I came out to San Diego, got a job subbing, and within three months, I had a permanent subbing job. And then the following full school year, they hired me. I stayed there for 30 years, retired in 2009, and in 2011, I started writing. Wow. Uh, and I've enjoyed it more than anything else I've done. And thank you so much for, for spending time with me on this. But well, thank you. So as I told you, the last question I always ask is, is if you've got a wish, generally for Grossiel, because we're normally talking to, to people that are here, and since you're over there, I think your, your wish might be a little broader. Well, I think my wish is a little broader. We did talk about this earlier, so I'm not going to talk about the uh, the free bridge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, everybody knows about that. Yeah. I have three friends who live in Grossteel, and I guess my my wish is a more of a personal one, broadly, in that I hope we get some relief from COVID soon. And if if we do, I want to fly into town. Uh, probably mid-July, and do some book talks. But I have three friends who live uh, on the island, and, and and I miss them a whole lot. So I, my wish is that we can all get healthy enough so uh, we can go out and have dinner again. Excellent, and I and I hope to to meet you in in real life at, at that point. So good, good, Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, this has been a, a fun conversation, and it's been a real treat to dig in a little bit into the dark underbelly of Detroit. Maybe we put some rumors to bed, put more certainly put more rumors to bed than than we confirmed, and and that's why that's really why I host the podcast is to to help people sink into to what's going on. And I want you to know that I appreciate you and uh, your book has been very entertaining and I'm looking forward to reading even more of your stuff. So well, thank, thank you. you so much. I, I, that, that's music to my ears and I really appreciate <laughs> it because that's what I do it for. It's not about the money and there's not much money, believe me. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's about uh, do, doing some good work and hopefully some work that enlightens people in the Detroit area in particular, about their history. There, there's just so much of it. And this, this state has a, a just no end to interesting stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Remember that you can find links to Gregory A. Fournier's books, blog, and talks in the episode notes. I really appreciate the time he spent talking with me. Hopefully I get to thank him in person this summer. Check out his books and keep an eye out for possible movies and a miniseries. I'm sorry we ran so long this time. I won't make it a habit. And because of that, I'll just say thanks for listening this week. Look in the episode notes for where you can see what's going on with the podcast. 
What's the Deal Gross Eel is recorded and produced by me, Ben Fote. You can keep in touch with me through the What's the Deal Gross Eel Facebook page or email me at whatsthedealgi at gmail.com. You can share episodes from Facebook or hear them from the website, whatsthedealgi.com. And of course, it never hurts to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes through your favorite podcast delivery tool, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so many others. Our intro and credit music is Mocktails in the Rain by Anti Ludo, which is used through a Creative Commons license. Find more of his music on soundclick.com as Anti's Instrumentals. Thanks for listening to... What's the deal, Grosiel?